ask you guys to, uh, to get your Bibles out, if you have them, to Matthew 25. Okay, so Matthew 25, folks, this is, this is the last Sunday of our extended Advent series that started in December. If you guys remember why we're here in Matthew 25, we're here because the two most important events in the history of mankind are the two Advents of Jesus Christ. And we experienced the first advent through many Old Testament scriptures that predicted that first advent, that first coming, so precisely. And, and I just want to do a little wrap today because this is the final of, the, of this little mini-series. Remember that we saw through the Old Testament, not the New Testament, but the Old Testament itself, that the Messiah would be born of the seed of the woman, Genesis 3. He would destroy Satan and his work. He would be descended from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, Jesse, and David. We see that in a lot of places, but we see it in Genesis 49, Isaiah 11. We saw in Isaiah 42 that he'd be the savior of Israel and also a covenant for all the nations, peace for the whole world. We saw in Psalm 110 that David said he would be the Lord over his Lord, or the Lord under his Lord. In other words, David said, the Lord Yahweh said to my Lord. And we saw how that, that's a very strange thing to say for the king of Israel to say that he's got essentially two lords. We also saw in Psalm 110 that this Lord would be a king and an eternal priest. We saw in Isaiah 9, he would be a child given to us and mighty God over us. We saw in Micah 5, where he'd be born, that he'd be born in Bethlehem. And he would also be not only born in Bethlehem, but he would be one Micah says, from de- all the days of eternity, his origins would be ancient. We saw that he would be the peace of his people. In Daniel 9, we saw most, most shockingly that, that Daniel 9 tells us the Messiah would appear some 480 or so years after Jerusalem's building, rebuilding was decreed. We saw that he would come to his people in Zechariah 9 as their king, riding on a donkey, a symbol of gentleness and humility. In Isaiah 53, in Psalm 22, we reflect on the circumstances of his death and why he died. In both those Old Testament passages, we saw that he'd be rejected by his own, condemned to death unjustly. He'd be scourged, his hands and feet pierced, his limbs stretched to the breaking point. He'd be mocked as his clothes are divided by lot in front of him that he'd be assigned a criminal's grave, but there would be some interruption. He'd be buried with a rich man in his death. We saw that the whole purpose of his suffering was so that he would die in the place of those who rejected him, that he would justify his people from all their sins by becoming their atoning sacrifice through his own murder. We saw that he would, through that, be a covenant for the people, and that after his death, the temple and Jerusalem would be destroyed. That's back to Daniel 9. And w- one of the primary reasons why in the, the, the first Advent part of our series that I wanted to go over those things, it, well, there's several reasons. Because in, in light of 2,000 years that we've been waiting for Jesus to return, in light of the doubts that we can struggle with, in light of the unbelief and, and the increasingly aggressive mocking of Christianity and the glory of Christ as the Son of God, that we would see through all those prophecies that came to pass, that we can look back and say, God, you said this and it came true. That we would see how God has abundantly filled his word with promises that he fulfills. 
that we could then take that now and with renewed confidence and the fear of the Lord, we could be freshly empowered for his second coming. That we would look back and say, God, you said you would do all these things and you did them. So now, when you say you're coming again, we could really take it to heart afresh and really believe him for it. So after Christmas, if you guys remember, we started this focus on the second coming, the second advent. And in these last few messages, we, we've, we've seen that the Lord tells us in Matthew 25 that the world between his advents, his first coming and second comings, would be a place of war and calamity, false gospels, false messiahs, and persecution, even as the gospel continues to spread across the globe right until the end. That's what Jesus said the world would be like for the last 2,000 years. And that's what the world has been like for the last 2,000 years. And we've seen Jesus repeatedly imply, if you've listened to the messages we've been going through in the past we've been looking at, that between his first and second coming, it would not seem short to us, but it would seem long to us. My master is a long time coming, he says in his parables. And, and while there are some details in the Bible about the specific circumstances of his second coming. What we hear from Jesus' lips and the thrust of the whole New Testament again and again is not a focus on, on figuring out dates, but a focus on being ready. It's not a focus on watching the skies and watching the, the calendars or watching political intrigue and trying to figure out whether this is the Antichrist or that's the Antichrist. or this is the, It's really a focus on our hearts being ready for his return whenever it is because Jesus promises that we will not know when he's coming. He promises even to his disciples, your master is coming back at an hour you do not expect. So be ready all the time. Be ready all the time because it's going to catch everyone by surprise. And so he says, watch your lives in such a way that you're always found ready. And that's really what this whole second Advent series is about, really about the whole Advent. It's just we want to live in such a way that we're ready for him when he returns. Now today, the Lord closes this discourse on his return with one of the most intimidating and dramatic passages of scripture. In fact, personally in my heart, I do not know of a more intimidating passage. And, and part of what makes it so sobering is, is the fact that these metaphoric elements that Jesus has been using up until now, like oil and lamps and the talents, these pounds of gold, he starts to draw the curtains back on those things with his own words and he starts to use more literal language and what's pictured in our passage today are actual words that Jesus says he speaks to his people and those who aren't his people at the last judgment. They don't need a ton of unpacking. We hear them and we can imagine hearing them and understand them immediately. And I'll be honest with you guys, this is a scary passage for me. And this text is, to, for, for me, as emotionally challenging as any text could be. And I, but I've got to preach it to you because <laughs> God didn't tell me to tell you my stories and just my stuff. He wants me to t preach his word, right? And his, his great commission is go into the world, make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. 
and so I just want to say again, like I, I'm not sharing these passages to scare you or to discourage you. And I hope as we get to the end today, you guys will be encouraged. But I'm sharing these things because they're God's word and he's commanded me to preach them to you. So before we get into the, for me personally, scariest passage in all the Bible, can we go to the Lord in prayer and ask him for his help? Lord, I, I just want to ask you to wash us with your word today. I pray for power to not be confusing. I pray for power to represent you as one Christ, not the Christ of confusion. I pray you would give me power and clarity and open our hearts to see one gospel, not a divided gospel. And I pray by your power that everyone who needs to be, Lord, sobered, by your loving discipline through these words, would be. And everyone who needs to be protected from condemnation and hopelessness would be protected. And that all together, Lord God, we would know you better, fear you more, and love you more through having heard your word together, God. Lord, do your holy work through your holy word, through the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Matthew 25, starting in verse 31, I will read to the end of the chapter, verse 46. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne and before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep's from the goats and he will place the sheep on his right but the goats on the left and then the king will say to those on his right come you who are blessed by my father inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world for I was hungry and you gave me food I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you and thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they will answer saying, Lord, 
when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of these, the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now, there's not, there's not a, a great deal of metaphor and symbolism here to try to interpret, as I said before. There's no oil and lamps. There's no tablets of gold. Even what he means by sheep and goats is really clear. He's talking about people from the nations. It's, it's a more straightforward and more self-explanatory passage than we've been looking at. But there are some really important things to discuss about this passage, aren't there? I can't just close this and go home. So let's consider a few important things that really jump out from this text, I think. First, Jesus identifies with his people. He, that's what he did here. He identified with his people in this passage. In, in either the case of the sheep or the goats, Jesus says, what you did or what you did not do to these people, you did or did not do to me. And some people have interpreted this parable as expressing God's general concern for the poor. And God cares about the poor. I think I remember it was World Vision or another a relief agency would use these passages. You know, whatever you did, at least what you did to me, and they'd show a child that was orphaned or poor in, in, in some foreign country. And, and you were supposed to do a one-to-one there. Like, okay, so that child is, Jesus is in them and I need to care for that child. That's how... And, and absolutely, God cares about the poor. You can just look at the story of the Great Samaritan. There, there's religious affiliation is actually what surprises in the Great Samaritan story, because, or the uh, Good Samaritan story, because the Good Samaritan's not a Jewish person. And yet he is showing love for neighbor that Jesus commends and calls for from us. But, but it's really important to see in this passage, that's not what Jesus is saying here. No doubt the Lord cares about the poor, but this is not general concern for the poor. It's, it's confern, concern for Jesus' brothers and sisters, wherever they are. In, in Matthew 12, we read, while Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers, that would be his real Mary and his real blood brothers, his half-brothers, they stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. And he replied to them, who is my mother? And who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother There's, there's a lot of talk that you guys have heard growing up in different ways about the, the family of man and, and the brotherhood of man or the brotherhood of mankind. Or, but there's really not a lot on that in Scripture. There's, there's, that's not really a prominent concept in Scripture, the brotherhood of all people. In Scripture, those who belong to Jesus 
are his brothers and sisters. And those who do not belong to Jesus are not his brothers and sisters. It, it really is binary in the scriptures. And the reason why Jesus came and why he sends us out into the world to be witnesses for him is because people are not his brothers and sisters right now, all around us. And, and he, he calls us to be a light to them so they might become his brothers and sisters to us. And that's a part, big part of why we're a church is that we might nourish each other to be that light at work in our neighborhoods and our communities because people are not his brothers and sisters and he wants them to be. But this passage tells us just how deep Jesus' people are actually related to him. They're so close to him as his brothers and sisters that whatever happens to them happens to Jesus. You see, it's not just you're my brother and my sister. You're my brother and my sister in such a way that whatever happens to you happens to me. I identify with you. Do you remember what Jesus said to Paul on the Damascus road in Acts 9, 4? He said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Jesus had died and risen and gone to heaven, right? Paul was going from house to house, arresting and mistreating Christians. Not Jesus in the flesh, Jesus came and he saw no division between who he was and who his people were. What you're doing, Paul, to my followers, you're doing to me. You remember John 17, when Jesus prayed his prayer before he was betrayed, he said to his father, may they be one as we are one. I in them, you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. The, the implication, unity in us. Again and again and again in scripture, we are told that the church of Jesus Christ is not composed simply of people who follow Jesus, but who are his very bride and who are by virtue of the one flesh metaphor of marriage become his, his actual body. That we are his body. And that what is done to us is done to him. So a huge implication for this passage for us is the truth that whatever we do to a member of the body of Christ, we do to Christ. And of course, there are more specific applications for the poor and the needy, but, but on the way to that, it's important to even look around this room and recognize whatever we do, however we treat each other, that's how we're treating Jesus Christ. And, and there's a secondary indirect motive for our homes. If your husband or your wife is a believer in Jesus Christ and you're, you're mistreating them, neglecting them, it's how you're treating Jesus Christ. Number two, I want to talk about the surprise of the sheeps and the goats. In both cases, these people are surprised. And, and what are they surprised by? They're not surprised to learn where they're going necessarily, though I'm sure that's implicit. They're surprised to learn that when they were caring for or when they were ignoring Jesus' people, they were caring for ignoring Jesus. Why, why were they surprised? Especially, I think, about the sheep. Like, didn't the sheep know their Bibles? 
I mean, I just preached to you and told you that how you treat one another is how you're treating Jesus. So why would you be surprised on the last day if when you were caring for your brothers and sisters in Christ, whether here or in terrible circumstances or in third world countries where you support them, you'd be like, oh, they were Jesus in you? Like, why are they surprised? Well, I I don't want to push this passage too far. Like, I I don't think Jesus is literally going to have this exact speech and and with every person, they're going to have this exact response with Jesus. That's not the point of this. So there is a a, a metaphorical element in in here. Like, Jesus isn't giving you a transcript of what he's going to say to, you know, nine billion people. I will say these exact words, they will say these exact words. There's a principle in here that he's trying to get at here first principle we saw was that he identifies with his people and I think that's that's the central point here that how we treat Jesus people is how we treat him so I think that's part of the surprise is to highlight so he can repetitively say do you get this they didn't get it get this they didn't understand it they were surprised by it I want you to get it I want you to see it now ahead of time but I I think the surprise and the judgment is pictured here it can also anticipate some possible reasons for the surprise that's going to be helpful for us as we try to reconcile all we're reading here with the gospel. In the case of the sheep, I think what the surprise might be saying to us is that what's been driving their care in their caring for Jesus' brothers and sisters was actual love for the folks that they're serving. In other words, they weren't saying, oh, Matthew 25 says if I'm nice to a jailed Christian, I can get points with Jesus for being nice to Jesus and earn my salvation. We know from scripture again and again, we cannot earn our way to God. We know that any attempt to do so with acts of love is a denial of the gospel and really a denial of love. If, if we could earn our way with God through deeds of love, we could boast before God about ourselves. And the Lord says, no one will be able to boast before me. It would mean that we could, we could be saved through the law. We talked about that a few weeks ago. The law says, love your neighbor as yourself. The Bible tells us the law cannot save us. It leads us to Jesus as a, tra- as a tutor, a teacher, show us that we need him. If we could save ourselves through deeds of love, it would mean that Jesus died for nothing and that we should set aside grace as our hope. The exact opposite thing that Paul commands us to do in Colossians and Galatians 2, he says, I do not set aside the grace of God for if righteousness could be gained by my obeying the law, then Christ died for nothing. Implication, my righteousness cannot be gained by my obedience. It's impossible for me. So we know that's not going on here. But what, what is more likely going on here and fueling their surprise that, whoa, that was you is, is that these deeds were actual deeds of love and compassion. They weren't thinking of earning points with Jesus. They actually cared about these believers. They loved them. They were in their lives. Their lives were, their hope, their desires were inextricably linked with these people. They loved them. And they deeply cared about them. And so 1 Corinthians 13, it tells us that that has to be true in our serving, right? That real love has to be there. It doesn't count for anything. It means nothing if I give my body to be burned and all I have to the poor, but I, I don't actually have love for people. It profits me nothing. 
Galatians 5, 6 says that the only thing that counts is our faith in the Lord expressing itself through love to other people. So these deeds that Jesus is commending were rooted in real love and real compassion. But where does that kind of love and that kind of compassion for God's people come from? And this is why I say this helps us reconcile this passage with the gospel. Because as I said last week about the parable of the talents, it's really important we, we understand this passage is not the gospel. This passage cannot save us. In John, 1 John 4.19, John says this simple thing. We love because he first loved us. We love because he first loved us. So what this whole parable is showing us is that, that when God saves us, he changes us. When a person is really born again, they are really different. Not perfect, but different. And, and Jesus, when we're born again, he places us into a family, his church. And in that family, and I'm not, I'm not saying he places us into a local church, though that's something that I believe God wants for all his people. I, I, he places us into the body of Christ, the whole body of Christ, in China, in America, in South America, in Indonesia, wherever there are Christians, they are your family. And when we're inserted in that family, he also puts a principle inside us. It's like a law of gravity. We find ourselves, not perfectly, not as much as we should, not as much as we will, we find ourselves loving these people. I remember when I was saved in 1992 and I, I just, I couldn't understand, you know, empirically, like, I, I just loved these people that I was brought in. I'd go to these inner varsity meetings and I'd sit down at these Bible studies. I barely knew them. But I, I could just tell, like, these were good people who loved me and I loved them. It, it, it just felt like the, the wheels were so greased, you know, for walls to come down and to share our lives with each other. And I had a sense of confidence. I was safe with them and they were safe with me. <laughs> 28 years later, I've learned to be a little bit more careful, <laughs> right? Those more idealistic days have, have you know, shown that, wow, well, Christians really can bite each other and devour each other. But it hasn't erased that sense I have either, though, I, that, that I, just, I just love God's people and they love me. And I experienced that, I've experienced that from the beginning of my days as in Christ until now. And of course, we experience it sometimes more with others. Not everybody can be your Jonathan, you know, a soulmate type of person. But, but God puts that in you when you're saved. And, and it's not a love that's rooted in how they treat you. It's the kind of love that God has for us. It's a love that doesn't find its reasons for loving in the, in the deserving of the person who you love. That's the miracle of God's love. His love for us isn't rooted in how lovable we are. It's rooted in the fact that he's, he loves. That's just who he is. And he puts that miraculous love inside us so that we're able to do that same thing. And obviously, we have to steward this love. We can mute it. We can harm it by neglecting it. 
and we can fan it into flame by putting it into use? Have you ever noticed that the, the more you fellowship with people in a context like a care group or a discipleship group or a prayer meeting, the more you want to fellowship with those people? And, and the, the less that you fellowship with people, leading them in a Bible study like Donna or just coming to a prayer meeting like Kim or just being faithful to come to your care group like Jess and Chris, the, the more your lives get intertwined with those people, the more you want to be there. I, I found it again and again. It's, it's like it's very hard to push the door of fellowship open when I haven't been around in a while or even when it's just been a long week. It's very hard to push the, the door open to get into that fellowship dynamic. But after a while and I'm in there and I'm walking with those people or engaging with them, I, I'm just like, wow, like this is good food. Why did I not want to come here? Why did I not want to be with these people? This is, this is sweet. This is what I needed. The Holy Spirit's at work in that. So we have a role to play. We have a role to play to steward the love that God gives us for his people by engaging with them and pushing ourselves into their lives to care about them, to know about them, to follow up with them. And as we do that, though, we fan that love into flame and it grows. So, to close this little section here, I, I think one of the aspects of surprise for the sheep is that they weren't getting points with Jesus in their goals. That wasn't their ambition. They, they genuinely loved these people because they had genuinely been transformed by the love of God. They were saved by faith alone. And yet through the power of the Holy Spirit, they were transformed into men and women who genuinely loved one another and cared for one another. The surprise of the goats, it seemed simpler to me. They, they did not recognize Jesus in his people because they didn't care about Jesus or his people. They did not love Jesus' brothers and sisters and they ignored their needs and their suffering. Their surprise is horror. We didn't recognize so much was at stake in how we treated people. I listened to Ask Pastor John, John Piper's Ask Pastor John podcast pretty regularly. If you, if you haven't listened to it, it's a great little podcast. It's like eight minutes long, 11 minutes long. I listen to it with the kids on the way to school sometimes. I, I love, you guys know I'm a big fan of John Piper. He's not perfect. I don't agree with everything he says, but I think he's so faithful to try hard to represent scripture. But one of the things that, somebody brought up in one of the podcasts was, I think their question was something like, are, are, hell and sin, are hell and Jesus' crucifixion overkill for sin? Like, isn't it just a bit much to send people to hell and to have to have your son crucified for other people? Like, don't we all know to like, be kind to one another? And aren't we, aren't we all trying to be kind to one another? And, and one of the things that, that Piper gleaned in this engagement with this person, which I just thought was so important and so crucial, was the lack in their question of any connection between the sins that they commit against people and God. In other words, when we think about the sheeps and the goats, we think about caring for poverty. We think about caring for those who need help. We think about naked and in prison and hungry. And we should but I want to come back to this first point. What Jesus' ultimate decision for these people's eternal destiny is based on 
is not simply in how they treated each other. It's that how they treated each other was how they were treating God. And how they treated God was revealing their eternal destiny. How they treated God was revealing their eternal destiny. And, and that's why I've said, you know, many times before, our age is such a social justice conscious age. And that's, that's good, like to a degree. There's a lot of good in that. But in so much of it, it is a godless, if not a God-hating, social justice age. We see people so concerned for social justice issues and mocking Christ at the same time. I've got to tell you guys, it doesn't work with God. Empty religion that says I love Jesus and doesn't care about his people doesn't work with God. And good works that have no regard for the fear of the Lord or his glory as the most important central issue in anything we do doesn't work with God. And so the central truth that was dreadful for them and that was joyful for the sheep was when you did what you did to my people, you did it to me. And I matter. I matter. In fact, I matter more than anything and anyone. And divine justice decrees that I must hold people accountable for how they treat me. That's what God says. And how you treat one another is important, not because of how you treat one another, not that you're worthless. Not that the image of God in every person doesn't have dignity and carry dignity, it does. But it matters most of all because it is how you are treating God. And it's his image that you bear. And it's his Holy Spirit that indwells you. And that's what's most precious about you. Finally, the inescapable conclusion I want to sort of cut to the chase here in the face of the tension that, that might be building in you that always builds in me when I engage this parable. How do we reconcile with, this, with the gospel of, of grace? I call this the inescapable conclusion and I'll, I'll try to explain why. <laughs> I have been a Christian for, like I can't believe that I've been alive for 48 years and I can't believe that I mean, now I'm going off on a tangent. You guys don't need it. I'm just going to get back to my sermon. Come on, rain it in, Albert. I became, it's right here. I became a Christian in 1992, which, you know, some of you guys weren't even born in 1992. A lot of you people weren't born in 1992. I was in college. I, I had the most terrifying dream in the weeks leading up to my conversion that I've ever had before or since. It was absolutely terrifying. It was in the highest class of the word, a nightmare. And I believe to this day it was absolutely from the Lord. In the dream I was walking along a beach at night with some relatives of mine. The moon was full and it was big and it was bright white. And it was pleasant. It was a nice evening. There were no worries in my heart. 
I looked down the beach shore and I saw the lights from an amusement park miles away. I looked up. There were the trees up the hills from the beach. It was a beautiful night. And in the middle of that walk, I look up at the moon again, big and bright, bold and beautiful, filling the night with a good amount of beautiful moonlight. And suddenly, instantly, <laughs> the moon began to drip red with blood. The blood cascade across its face like slow tears. And that in scripture is an ap- apocalyptic image. The moon will turn red as blood. I believe it's in Joel, it's in Revelation. And I knew in that moment, immediately, I knew as that blood came down across the moon that the great judgment of God was coming upon the world and time was up and it was up for me and I was on the wrong side of judgment. And I immediately felt a pain in my spirit I can barely describe. It was not really physical. It wasn't primarily physical. It was soul pain. It was spiritual pain but it reached every part of me and it was crushing. But I was still alive, but it was crushing. And I knew in that moment I was facing the eternal judgment of God without Jesus. I awoke from that dream and I crawled down the hall into the bed with my mom and dad and I slept there the rest of the night. I was 20 years old. Over the next few days and probably a couple of weeks, I pondered and pondered my salvation. I, I increasingly knew I was a sinner against God and love and that, that I was doomed. My Christian friend had told me though for, for the last year or so that I could only be saved by trusting Jesus Christ to do for me what I could not do for myself. I could only be saved by asking Jesus and trusting Jesus to forgive me and change my heart. But I was Catholic And I did not understand or accept salvation by grace. See, I I knew enough Bible to be really dangerous to myself. And I knew there was one profound passage that I could not get out of the way in order to believe that God would save me as a free gift through faith in Jesus and not by what I did. And do you know what passage it was? It was this passage. The passage of the sheep and the goats. I had reasoned for a while, like, I did these good things, so up you go. You did these bad things, so down you go. What could be simpler? Salvation was by works, works of how I treated people, works of love. And I'm doomed. Because I don't even want to stop getting drunk. I don't want to save myself for marriage. I don't want to respect my parents very much and I don't want to be kind to nerds. I want to be cool. I want to... Much less do I want to, you know, am I out there feeding the poor or or, or Christians? So I felt very trapped. And do you know what? If, If this was the only passage in the Bible... In fact, if it was the only passage we had in Matthew, I would have been trapped. And I would have remained hopeless and doomed to condemnation if this was the whole Bible. 
But then my friend shared in the midst of that agony a passage with me that I'd never contemplated before. And here's what it said. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, as were the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Jadis, you can clap for the whole rest of the message if you want. (laughs) For by grace, my friend said to me through Paul, by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Blew the doors off my life and and kicked a hole in my hopelessness that the hopelessness just, it, it couldn't endure. See, the, the inescapable conclusion is that in order for my life to bear the fruit of love and compassion for Jesus in his people, that this parable, the sheeps and the goats pictures, I must have my heart changed. But I cannot change my own heart in my own power. My heart is by definition all I am. It's, that's what the Hebrew word means. It means the, the very core of who you are. It's all I have to work with. It would be like telling a car to take gas from its tank so that it can have more gas in its tank, right? Like it doesn't make any sense. Well, the gas that's now in my tank can only come from my tank. I can't get any more gas in my tank. And before Christ, Ephesians 2 calls me dead in sins. How able is a dead man to change himself? And so in order for me to be changed, I must be changed by something outside of me. I need fuel from another tank. And this is what Jesus does. He gives the gift of new life. He gives the gift of a new heart when I trust him to do that. I remember my friend saying these words, Albert, your heart is black as a dense forest. I mean, I don't know if he's using these metaphors, but it worked. It was like, oh, I just saw this forest of thick black trees of sin everywhere. And he said, you can't cut it down. You need Jesus to come and cut it all down and give you a new heart. My friend Ken texted him last night, said, you're in my message again tomorrow, buddy.
And, and a few days later, actually, actually I think it was the very next morning after this conversation, I asked my father to settle this for me. My father had been a Presbyterian, and now he was a Catholic, so I thought he's on both sides, and we could figure this out. I said, God, help me. So I said, Dad, are we saved by grace, or are we saved by what we do? And my dad pulled from his Reformed Theology deck, and he just said, Albert, we are saved by faith. It's believing God that changes us. We can't earn our salvation. Thank God he didn't give me a whole bunch of notes from the Council of Trent. <sighs> it's a Catholic conference in 16-something or 14-something. I didn't need that. I needed the Bible. No offense if Catholicism is your background. A lot of good things the Catholic Church taught me. I didn't get this from them, though. He said it's a gift. And by God's grace, he gave me the eyes to believe it. My life changed. I put my hope in Jesus to do for what I could not do for myself. I put my hope in what he did on the cross to forgive all my sins, past, present, and future, to make me a new creation. And that's what he does. He makes us new. And then he says in verse 10, and this is where we come back to this parable. He says, I create you for good works. I make you a masterpiece for my good works that I've prepared in your life to do. These good works that I've called you to do, Albert or Jesse or Rob or Haley, I've created them in advance for your life. I put that person in your life who you bought a car for. John Coleman would never want you guys to know that he's bought cars for people. <laughs> so don't tell him I told you. I put that missionary in your life that you support so they can stay on the field and care for their family with food and clothing. I put that orphan in your life that you sponsor through Gospel Haiti, who came to Christ through Gospel Haiti, and who's now Jesus in Haiti. I put that single mom in your life that you supported through church giving and just being her friend and just asking how she's doing consistently being in her care group so you could serve and be with her. I put that brother in your life who you ended up discipling and mentoring. I put that child in your path that you adopted, brought into your family, and is now your firstborn son. I put that dad in your life who lost his job, who you helped pay his mortgage from the benevolence fund you give to at the church. I put that addict addict in your life who was born again through your testimony at a church meeting. I, I put that family in your life that you made meals for when their mom died. I put that pastor in your life who you prayed for <laughs> and who prayed for you. But none of this happens to Jesus in these people unless Jesus makes you a new creation and Jesus will not make you a new creation through your effort. So the inescapable conclusion, folks, is that we must have Jesus. Both for salvation. Janice, will you just, you just start coming to this church every Sunday so you can get us clapping? Like, I just, I need you for these messages now. <laughs> I'm just teasing. I want you to care for your local church and we can work that out and figure out how to get you at both churches and 
Now listen, Jesus tells us again and again in this chapter and all the parables we looked at, be ready. You will have to give an account for your life. And he's not kidding. I would fail you. I would dishonor God. I would distort his word if I did not exhort you with his words. Be ready. That's what all these parables are about. But for that, we need Jesus. We need him to be saved and we need him every day as fuel. Every day getting up and saying, Lord, my call is to die to myself today. Pick up my cross daily. Thank God I don't do it once for 35 years. I get to take it a day at a time. But each day I do it, I gotta pick it up. And then God, I gotta say, I need you to carry this in me. I need your yoke to be easy and your burden to be light. I need you to be gentle and humble with me. I need you to provide a way of escape when I'm tempted so that I can endure it. I need your throne of grace and mercy to go to any time during today when I'm tempted and tried as you are, but never sinned. I need to know that I'm not earning my salvation so I don't have to wear the law as a curse, but I can wear faith in Jesus as my finished work savior and by believing in him be filled with his Holy Spirit. So please help me to hold on to all these things because there is gonna be an accounting. There is gonna be revealing whether you really believed him or he says, I never knew you, you were deceived. But do you know what comes after these scary parables? I just love this. I saw this for the first time last night in studying scripture. It's amazing. And you need to know something about Bibles. There's no chapter headings in the actual stuff that, Matt, like when Matthew wrote the Bible, when he wrote the Gospel of Matthew, he didn't put verse 14, verse 15. He didn't put 12 chapter divisions, 24. He wrote just the big story. And we came in later so that we could organize and understand it. And that's really helpful, right? But sometimes it's not helpful because we'll miss the connections between chapters. And here's what's so beautiful. Because right after Jesus says, the righteous will go into eternal life and the wicked will go into eternal death. The very next thing that comes out of Matthew's breath is this. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, so he's referencing him, that's a big clue. Connect all these things, hold on to all these things. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, remember all these things, these parables, these warnings? He said this, as you know, the Passover is two days away and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Why does Matthew connect all these things with Jesus' crucifixion? Because Matthew will tell us a few verses later in this very same chapter that Jesus took bread and when given thanks, he breaks it, gives it to his disciples and says, take and eat. This is my body. Then he takes the cup and when he'd given thanks, he gives it to them and says, drink from it, all of you. This is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do you see what Matthew is, is making for Jesus to do here? Jesus had to be crucified so on that day you will hear you are a new creation. You weren't perfect, but the things you did, you did for me. Well done, good and faithful servant. Jesus has to be crucified for that. He was crucified because a day is coming when you have to stand before God. And on that day, he will say of your sin, your sins are forgiven. And he will say of your good works, these were done by the covenant. 
the new covenant that changes your heart, the new covenant in my blood that made you a new creation. And all of this is a gift of my grace. So as we close this series, let's, let's, let's respond to the coming day of judgment by hearing Jesus when he says, be prepared. But let's be prepared, first of all, by placing our hope not in ourselves, but in him, in his blood, in his covenant that changes us. And we can call to him, say, Lord, you change me. Let me manifest and express that change today through the power of your Holy Spirit. The writer of Amazing Grace, John Newton, he was, before Jesus, a horrible man. John Newton was a slave trader for years. He heard the screams, perhaps of thousands of African slaves, chained below the decks of his ship, chained to a living death, as mother and child were kidnapped, separated, dragged across the oceans for years to be sold like cattle and whipped harder than horses. But God saved John Newton. And he made him a new creation. And John Newton became a new creation. And so because he was a new creation, he renounced the slave trade in the name of Jesus Christ. And he fought it as an abolitionist in England. And he lived to see it abolished in England. And here's what he said. He said, I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world. But still, I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. Let's thank God for his grace and let's pray for more of it. Could I ask the the team to come up so we can sing to the Lord as well when we close? Okay, Janice, I'm going to clap with you because <laughs> thank you, sister. Lord, there is so much more in our lives we, we want to give you then we do give you. We hear these words that you've been telling us to be prepared and Lord, we have the fear of the Lord in us. But Lord, you are our father. You're, you're not our judge. Not primarily God. You, you're our father. We're, we're, we're created new by you. We're your workmanship and you have good works planned in advance for us. So Lord, we just ask you in Jesus' name, Would you once again, through the power of your Holy Spirit, cleanse us of selfishness. Help us to to love you in loving your people. Help us, Lord God, to, to hold on to Jesus as our only hope so that when these good works do come out of us, he gets praise and glory, not us. Lord, cleanse our church to live in the whole good news of both your forgiveness and your transforming power. That we might be both forgiven people, but living and walking as new people. 
would you pour down your Holy Spirit afresh that we might experience that more and more. 